Chapter 11. How George, once upon a time, got up early in the morning. George, Harris, and Montmorency do not like the look of the cold water. Heroism and determination on the part of Jay. George and his shirt. Story with a moral. Harris as cook. Historical retrospect, specially inserted for the use of schools. I woke at six the next morning and found George awake, too. We both turned round and tried to go to sleep again, but we could not. Had there been any particular re reason why we should not have gone to sleep again, but have got up and dressed then and there, we should have dropped off while we were looking at our watches and have slept till ten. As there was no earthly necessity for our getting up under another two hours at the very least, and our getting up at that time was an utter absurdity, it was only in keeping with the natural cussedness of things in general that we should both feel that lying down for five minutes more would be death to us. George said that the same kind of thing, only worse, had happened to him some eighteen months ago, when he was lodging by himself in the house of a certain Mrs. Gippings. He said his watch went wrong one evening and stopped at a quarter past eight. He did not know this at the time, because, for some reason or other, he forgot to wind it up when he went to bed, an unusual occurrence with him, and hung it up over his pillow without ever looking at the thing. It was in the winter when this happened, very near the shortest day, and a week of fog into the bargain, so the fact that it was still very dark when George woke in the morning was no guide to him as to the time. He reached up and hauled down his watch. It was a quarter past eight. "'Angels and ministers of grace, defend us!' exclaimed George, "'and here have I got to be in the city by nine. "'Why didn't somebody call me? "'Oh, this is a shame!' "'And he flung the watch down and sprang out of bed "'and had a cold bath and washed himself and dressed himself "'and shaved himself in cold water "'because there was not time for, to wait for the hot, "'and then rushed and had another look at the watch. "'Whether the shaking it had received "'and being thrown down on the bed had started it "'or how it was, George could not say. "'But certain it was that from a quarter past eight it, 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 it had begun to go, and now pointed to twenty minutes to nine. George snatched it up and rushed downstairs. In the sitting room, it was, all was dark and silent. There was no fire, no breakfast. George said it was a wicked shame of Mrs. G., and he made up his mind to tell her what he thought of her when he came home in the evening. Then he dashed on his great coat and hat, and, seizing his umbrella, made for the front door. The door was not even unbolted. George anathematized Mrs. G. for a lazy old woman and thought it was very strange that people could not get up at a decent, respectable time, unlocked and unbolted the door, and ran out. He ran hard for a quarter of a mile, and at the end of that distance it began to be borne in upon him as a strange and curious thing that there were so few people about, and that there were no shops open. It was certainly a very dark and foggy morning, but still it seemed an unusual course to stop all business on that account. He had to go to business. Why should other people stop in bed merely because it was dark and foggy? At length he reached Holborn. Not a shutter was down. Not a bus was about. There were three men in sight, one of whom was a policeman, a market cart full of cabbages, and a dilapidated-looking cab. George pulled out his watch and looked at it. It was five minutes to nine. He stood still and counted his pulse. He stooped down and felt his legs. Then, with his watch still in his hand, he went up to the policeman and asked him if he knew what time it was. "'What's the time?' said the man, eyeing George up and down with evident suspicion. "'Why, if you listen, you will hear it strike.' George listened, and a neighboring clock immediately obliged. "'But it's only gone three, George said in an injured tone when it had finished. "'Well, how many did you want it to go?' replied the constable. "'Why, nine, said George, showing his watch. "'Do you know where you live?' said the, the guardian of public order severely. George thought and gave the address. "'Oh, that's where it is, is it?' replied the man. "'Well, you take my advice and go there quietly, and take that watch of yours with you, and don't let's have any more of it.' 
and George went home again, musing as he walked along and let himself in. At first, when he got in, he determined to undress and go to bed again. But when he thought of the redressing and rewashing and the having of another bath, he determined he would not, but would sit up and go to sleep in the easy chair. But he could not get to sleep. He never felt more wakeful in his life, so he lit the lamp and got out the chessboard and played himself a game of chess. But even that did not enliven him. It seemed slow somehow, so he gave up chess and tried to read. He did not seem able to take any sort of interest in reading, either. So he put on his coat again and went out for a walk. It was horribly lonesome and dismal, and all the policemen he met regarded him with undisguised suspicion, and turned their lanterns on him and followed him about, and this had such an effect upon him at last that he began to feel as if he really had done something, and he got to slinking down by the by-streets and hiding in dark doorways when he heard the regulation flip-flop approaching. Of course, this conduct made the force only more distrustful of him than ever, and they would come and rout him out and ask him what he was doing there, and when he answered nothing, he had merely to come he had merely come out for a stroll. It was then four o'clock in the morning. They looked as though they did not believe him, and two plainclothes constables came home with him to see if he really did live where he had said he did. They saw him go in with his key, and then they took up a position opposite and watched the house. He thought he would light a fire when he got inside and make himself some breakfast just to pass away the time but he did not seem to be able to handle anything from a scuttleful of coals to a teaspoon without dropping it or falling over it and making such a noise that he was in mortal fear that it would make wake Mrs. G up, and that she would think it was burglars and open the window and call police, and then these two detectives would rush in and handcuff him and march him off to the police court. He was in a morbidly nervous state by this time, and he pictured the trial and his trying to explain the circumstances to the jury, and nobody believing him and is being sentenced to twenty years' penal servitude and his mother dying of a broken heart. So he gave up trying to get breakfast and wrapped himself in his overcoat and sat in the easy chair till Miss G came down at half-past seven. He said he had never got up too early since that morning. It had been such a warning to him. We had been huddled, sitting huddled up in our rugs while George had been telling me this true story, and on his finishing it I set to work to wake up Harris with a skull. The third prod did it, and he turned over on the other side, and said he would be down in a minute, and that he would have his lace-up boots. We soon let him know where he was, however, by the aid of the hitcher, and he sat up suddenly, sending Montmorency, who had been sleeping the sleep of the just, right on the middle of his chest, sprawling across the boat. Then we pulled up the canvas, and all four of us poked our head out over the offside, and looked down at the water and shivered. The idea overnight had been that we should get up early in the morning, fling off our rugs and shawls, and throwing back the canvas, spring into the river with a joyous shout and revel in a long, delicious swim. Somehow, now the morning had come, the notion seemed less tempting. The water looked damp and chilly. The wind felt cold. "'Well, who's going to be first in?' said Harris at last. There was no rush for precedence. George settled the matter so far as he was concerned by retiring into the boat and pulling on his socks." Montmorency gave vent to an involuntary howl, as if merely thinking of the thing had given him the horrors, and Harris said it would be so difficult to get into the boat again, and went back and sorted out his trousers. I did not altogether like to give in, though I did not relish the plunge. There might be snags about, or weeds, I thought. I meant to compromise matters by going down to the edge and just throwing the water over myself. So I took a towel and crept out on the bank and wormed my way along to the branch of a tree that dipped down into the water. It was bitterly cold. The wind cut like a knife. I thought I would not throw the water over myself after all. I would go back into the boat and dress, and I turned to do so, 
And as I turned, the silly branch gave way, and I and the towel went in all together with a tremendous splash, and I was out midstream with a gallon of Tim's water inside me before I knew what had happened. "'By Jove, old Jay's gone in,' I heard Harris say as I came blowing to the surface. "'I didn't think you'd have the pluck to do it, did you?' "'Is it all right?' sang out George. "'Lovely,' I spluttered back. "'You are duffers not to come in. I wouldn't have missed this for worlds. Why don't you try it? It only wants a little determination.' But I could not persuade them. Rather an amusing thing happened while dressing that morning. I was very cold when I got back into the boat, and in my hurry to get my shirt on, I accidentally jerked it into the water. It made me awfully wild, especially as George burst out laughing. I could not see anything to laugh at, and I told George so, and he only laughed the more. I never saw a man laugh so much. I quite lost my temper with him at last, and I pointed out to him what a driveling maniac of an imbecile idiot he was, but he only roared the louder. And then, just as I was landing the shirt, I noticed that it was not my shirt at all, but George's, which I had mistaken for mine, whereupon the humor of the thing struck me, me for the first time, and I began to laugh. And the more I looked from George's wet shirt to George, roaring with laughter, the more I was amused, and I laughed so much that I had to let the shirt fall back into the water again. Aren't you, aren't you going to get it out, said George between his shrieks. I could not answer him at all for a while, I was laughing so, but at last... Between my peels, I managed to jerk out. It isn't my shirt, it's yours. I never saw a man's face change from lively to severe so suddenly in all my life before. What? He yelled, springing up. You silly cuckoo. Why can't you be more careful what you're doing? Why the deuce don't you go and dress on the bank? You're not fit to be in a boat, you're not. Give me the hitcher. I tried to make him see the fun of the thing, but he could not. George is very dense at seeing a joke sometimes. Harris proposed that we should have scrambled eggs for breakfast. He said he would cook them. It seemed from his account that he was very good at doing scrambled eggs. He was quite famous for them. People who had once tasted his scrambled eggs, so we gathered from his conversation, never cared for any other food afterwards, but pined away and died when they could not get them. It made our mouths water to hear him talk about the things, and we handed him out the stove and the frying pan and all the eggs that had not smashed and gone over everything in the hamper, and begged him to begin. He had some trouble in breaking the eggs. Rather not so much trouble in breaking them exactly as in getting them into the frying pan when broken, and keeping them off his trousers and preventing them from running up his sleeve, but he fixed some half a dozen into the pan at last, and then squatted down by the side of the stove and chivied them about with a fork. It seemed harassing work, as so far as George and I could judge. Whenever he went near the pan, he burned himself, and then he would drop everything and dance around the stove, flicking his fingers about and cursing the things. Indeed, every time George and I looked round at him, he was sure to be performing this feat. We thought at first that it was a necessary part of the culinary arrangements. We did not know what scrambled eggs were, and we fancied that it must be some Red Indian or Sandwich Island sort of dish that required dances and incantations for its proper cooking. Montmorency went and put his nose over it once, and the fat spluttered up and scalded him, and then he began dancing and cursing. Altogether, it was one of the most interesting and exciting operations I have ever witnessed. George and I were both quite sorry when it was over. The result was not altogether the success that Harris had anticipated. There seemed so little to show for the business. Six eggs had gone into the frying pan, and all that came out was a teaspoonful of burnt and unappetizing-looking mess. Harris said it was the fault of the frying pan, and thought it would have gone better if we had had a fish kettle and a gas stove, and we decided not to attempt the dish again until we had those aids to housekeeping by us. The sun had got more powerful by the, by the time we had finished breakfast, and the wind had dropped, and it was as lovely a morning as one could desire. Little was in sight to remind us of the 19th century. 
and as we looked out upon the river in the morning sunlight, we could almost fancy that the centuries between us and that ever-to-be-famous June morning of 1215 had been drawn aside, and that we, English yeoman sons and homespun cloth with dirk at belt, were waiting there to witness the writing of that stupendous page of history, the meaning whereof was to be translated to the common people some four hundred and odd years later by one Oliver Cromwell, who had deeply studied it. It is a fine summer morning, sunny, soft, and still, but through the air there runs a thrill of coming stir. King John has slept at Duncroft Hall, and all the day before the little town of Staines has echoed to the clang of armed men, and the clatter of great horses over its rough stones, and the shouts of captains, and the grim oaths and surly jests of bearded bowmen, billmen, pikemen, and strange-speaking foreign spearmen. Gay-cloaked companies of knights and squires have ridden in, all travel-stained and dusty, and all the evening long the timid townsmen's doors have had to be quick opened to let in rough groups of soldiers, for whom there must be found both board and lodging, and the best of both, or woe betide the house and all within, for the sword is judge and jury, plaintiff and executioner, in these tempestuous times, and pays for what it takes by sparing those from whom it takes, if it pleases to do so. Round the campfire in the marketplace gather still more of the baron's troops, and eat and drink deep, and bellow forth roistering drinking songs, and gamble and quarrel as the evening grows and deepens into night. The firelight sheds quaint shadows on their piled-up arms and on their uncouth forms. The children of the town steal round to watch them, wondering, and brawny country wenches, laughing, draw near to bandy alehouses, jest and jibe with the swaggering troopers so unlike the village swains, who, now despised, stand apart behind, with vacant grins upon their broad, peering faces. And out from the fields around glitter the faint lights of more distant camps, as here some of great lord's followers lie mustered, and there false John's French mercenaries hover like crouching wolves without the town. And so, with sentinel in each dark street, and twinkling watchfires on each height around, the night has worn away, and over this fair valley of old Thames has broken the morning of the great day that is to close so big with the fate of ages yet unborn. Ever since grey dawn in the lower of the two islands, just above where we are standing, there has been great clamor and the sound of many workmen. The great pavilion... Oh, the great pavilion brought there yester-eve is being raised, and carpenters are busy nailing tiers of seats, while princesses from London town are there with many colored stuffs and silks and cloth of gold and silver. And now, lo, down upon the road that winds along the river's bank from stains there comes towards us, laughing and talking together in deep guttural bass, a half-score of stalwart halberd men, baron's men these, and halt at a hundred yards or so above us, on the other bank, and lean upon their arms, and wait. And so, from hour to hour, march up along the road ever fresh groups and bands of armed men, their casks and breastplates flashing back along the long, low lines of morning sunlight, until, as far as I can reach, the way seems thick with glittering steel and prancing steeds, and shouting horsemen are galloping from group to group, and little banners are fluttering lazily in the warm breeze, when every now and then there is a deeper stir as the ranks make way on either side, and some great baron on his war-horse, with his guard of squires around him, passes along to take his station at the head of his serfs and vassals. And up the slope of Cooper's Hill, just opposite, are gathered the wandering rustics and curious townsfolk who have run from Staines, and none are quite sure what the bustle is about. But each one has a different version of the great event that they have come to see, 
and some say that much good to all the people will come from this day's work, but the old men shake their heads, for they have heard such tales before. And all the river down to Staines is dotted with small craft and boats and tiny coracles, which last are growing out of favor now, and are used only by the poorer folk. Over the rapids, where in after years trim Belweir Lock will stand, they have been forced or dragged by their sturdy rowers, and now are crowding up as near as they dare come to the great covered barges, which lie in readiness to bear King John to where the fateful charter waits his signing. It is noon, and we and all the people have been waiting patient for many an hour, and the rumor has run round that Slippery John has again escaped from the baron's grasp, and has stolen away from Duncroft Hall with his mercenaries at his heels, and will soon be doing other work than signing charters for his people's liberty. Not so. This time the grip upon him has been one of iron, and he has slid and wriggled in vain. Far down the road a little cloud of dust has risen, and draws nearer and grows larger, and the pattering of many hoofs grows louder, and in and out between the scattered groups of drawn-up men there pushes on its way a brilliant cavalcade of gay-dressed lords and knights. And front and rear, and either flank, there ride the yeomen of the barons, and in the midst, King John. He rides to where the barges lie in readiness, and the great barons step forth from their ranks to meet him. He greets them with a smile and a laugh, and pleasant honeyed words, as though it were some feast to his honor to which he had been invited. But as he rises to dismount, he casts one hurried glance from his own French mercenaries drawn up in the rear to the grim ranks of the baron's men that hem him in. Is it too late? One fierce blow at the unsuspecting horseman at his side, one cry to his French troops, one desperate charge upon the unready lines before him, and these rebellious barons might rue the day they dared to thwart his plans. A bolder hand might have turned the game even at that point. Had it been a Richard there, the cup of liberty might have been dashed from England's lips, and the taste of freedom held back for a hundred years. But the heart of King John sinks before the stern faces of the English fighting men, and the arm of King John drops back on to, on to his reign, and he dismounts and takes his seat in the foremost barge, and the barons follow in with each mailed hand upon the sword hilt, and the word is given to let go. Slowly the heavy, bright-decked barges leave the shores of Runnymede. Slowly against the swift current they work their ponderous way, till, with a low grumble, they grate against the bank of the little island that from this day will bear the name of Magna Carta Island. And King John has stepped upon the shore, and we wait in breathless silence till a great shout cleaves the air, and the great cornerstone in England's Temple of Liberty has, now we know, been firmly laid. Chapter 12 Henry VIII and Anne Boleyn disadvantages of living in same house with pair of lovers, a trying time for the English nation, a night search for the picturesque, homeless and houseless, Harris prepares to die, an angel comes along, effect of sudden joy on Harris, a little supper, lunch, high price for mustard, a fearful battle, maidenhead, sailing, three fishers, we are cursed. I was sitting on the bank, conjuring up this scene to myself, when George remarked that when I was quite rested, perhaps I would not mind helping to wash up, and thus recalled from the days of the glorious past to the prosaic present, with all its misery and sin, I slid down into the boat and cleaned out the frying pan with a stick of wood and a tuft of grass, polishing it up finely with George's wet shirt. We went over to Magna Carta Island, and had a look at the stone which stands in the cottage there, 
and on which the Great Charter is said to have been signed, though as to whether it really was signed there, or as some say on the other bank at Runnymede, I decline to comment, to commit myself. As far as my own personal opinion goes, however, I am inclined to give weight to the popular island theory. Certainly, I had, been one, had I been one of the barons at the time, I should have strongly urged upon my comrades the advisability of our getting such a slippery customer as King John on the island, where there is less chance of surprises and tricks. There are the ruins of an old priory in the grounds of Anchorwhite House, which is close to Picnic Point, and it was round about the grounds of this old priory that Henry VIII is said to have waited for and met Anne Boleyn. He also used to meet her at Hever Castle in Kent, and also somewhere near St. Albans. It must have been difficult for the people of England in those days to have found a spot where these thoughtless young folk were not spooning. Have you ever been in a house where there are a couple courting? It is most trying. You think you will go and sit in the drawing room, and you march off there. As you open the door, you hear a noise as if somebody has suddenly recollected something. And when you get in, Emily is over by the window, full of interest in the opposite side of the road, and your friend John Edward is at the other end of the room with his whole soul held in thrall by photographs of other people's relatives. Oh, you say, pausing at the door. I didn't, nobody I didn't know anybody was in here. Oh, didn't you? Says Emily coldly, in a tone which implies she does not believe you. You hang about for a bit, then you say. It's very dark. Why don't you like the gas? John Edward says, oh. He hadn't noticed it, and Emily says that Papa does not like the gas lit in the afternoon. You tell them one or two items of news and give them your views and opinions on the Irish question but this does not appear to interest them. All they remark on any subject is, Oh, is it? Did he? Yes, and you don't say so. And after ten minutes of such style of conversation, you edge up to the door and slip out, and are surprised to find that the door immediately closes behind you and shuts itself without your having touched it. Half an hour later, you think you will try a pipe in the conservatory. The only chair in the place is occupied by Emily. And John Edward, if the language of clothes can be relied upon, has evidently been sitting on the floor. They do not speak, but they give you a look that says all that can be said in a civilized community, and you back out promptly and shut the door behind you. You are afraid to poke your nose into any room in the house now, so after walking up and down the stairs for a while, you go and sit in your own bedroom. This becomes uninteresting, however, after a time, and so you put on your hat and stroll out into the garden. You walk down the path, and as you pass the summer house, you glance in, and there are those two young idiots, huddled up into one corner of it, and they see you, and are evidently under the idea that, for some wicked purpose of your own, you are following them about. Why don't they have a special room for this sort of thing, and make people keep to it, you mutter. And you rush back to the hall, and get your umbrella, and go, excuse me, and go out. It must have been much like this when that foolish boy, Henry VIII, was courting his little Anne. People in people in Buckinghamshire would have come upon them unexpectedly when they were mooning round Windsor and Raysbury, and have exclaimed, Oh, you here! And Henry would have blushed and said, Yes, he'd just come over to see a man, and Anne would have said, Oh, I'm so glad to see you. Isn't it funny? I've just met Mr. Henry the Eighth in the lane, and he's going the same way I am. Then those people would have gone away and said to themselves, Oh, we'd better get out of here while this billing and cooing is on. We'll go down to Kent. And they would go down to Kent, and the first thing they would see in Kent when they got there would be Anne and Henry fooling around Hever Castle. Oh, drat this, they would have said. Here, let's go away. I can't stand any more of it. Let's go to St. Albans. Nice quiet place, St. Albans. And when they reached St. Albans, there would be that wretched couple kissing under the abbey walls. Then these folks would go and be pirates until the marriage was over. From Picnic Point to Old Windsor Lock is a delightful bit of river. A shady road dotted here and there with dainty little cottages. Oh, 
runs by the bank, excuse me, up to the Bells of Owsley, a picturesque inn, as most upriver inns are, and a place where a very good glass of ale may be drunk, so Harris says, and on a matter of this kind you can take Harris's word. Old Windsor is a famous spot in its way. Edward the Confessor had a palace here, and here the great Earl Godwin was proved guilty by the justice of that age of having encompassed the death of the king's brother. Earl Godwin broke a piece of bread and held it in his hand. If I am guilty, said the earl, may this bread choke me when I eat it. Then he put the bread into his mouth and swallowed it, and he choked him, and it choked him, and he died. After you pass Old Windsor, the river is somewhat un uninteresting and does not become itself again until you are nearing Boveney. George and I towed up past the home park, which stretches along the right bank from Albert to Victoria Bridge. And as we were passing Datchet, George asked me if I remembered our first trip up the river when we landed at Datchet at ten o'clock at night and wanted to go to bed. I answered that I did remember it. It will be some time before I forget it. It was the Saturday before the August bank holiday. We were tired and hungry, we same three, when we got to Datchet. We took out the hamper, the two bags, and the rugs and coats, and such like things, and started off to look for diggings. We passed a very pretty little hotel, with clematis and creeper over the porch, but there was no honeysuckle about it, and for some reason or other I had got my mind fixed on honeysuckle, and I said, oh, don't let's go in there, let's go on a bit further and see if there isn't one with honeysuckle over it. So we went on till we came to another hotel. That was a very nice hotel, too, and it had honeysuckle on it, round at the side. But Harris did not like the look of a man who was leaning against the front door. He said he didn't look a nice man at all, and he wore ugly boots, so we went on further. We went a goodish way without coming across any more hotels, and then we met a man and asked him to direct us to a few. He said, why, you are coming away from them. You must turn right round and go back, and then you will come to the stag. We said, oh, we had been there and didn't like it. No honeysuckle over it. Well, then, he said, there's the manor house just opposite. Have you tried that? Harris replied that we did not want to go there. Didn't like the looks of a man who was stopping there. Harris did not like the color of his hair. Didn't like his boots either. Well, I don't know what you'll do, I'm sure, said our informant, because they are the only two inns in the place. No other inns, exclaimed Harris. None, replied the man. What on earth are we to do, cried Harris. Then George spoke up. He said Harris and I could get a hotel built for us if we liked, and have some people made to put in. For his part, he was going back to the stag. The greatest minds never realize their ideals in any matter, and Harris and I sighed over the hollowness of all earthly desires and followed George. We took our traps into the stag and laid them down in the hall. The landlord came up and said, "'Good evening, gentlemen.' "'Oh, good evening,' said George. "'We want three beds, please.' "'Very sorry, sir,' said the landlord, "'but I'm afraid we can't manage it.' "'Oh, well, never mind,' said George. Two will do. Two of us can sleep in one bed, can't we?' he continued, turning to Harris and me. Harris said, "'Oh, yes. He thought George and I could sleep in one bed very easily.' "'Very sorry, sir,' again repeated the landlord. "'But we really haven't got a bed vacant in the whole house. "'In fact, we are putting two and even three gentlemen in one bed as it is.' This staggered us for a bit. But Harris, who is an old traveler, rose to the occasion and laughing cheerily said, oh, well, we can't help it. We must rough it. You must give us a shakedown in the billiard room. Very sorry, sir. Three gentlemen sleeping on the billiard table already and two in the coffee room. Can't possibly take you in tonight. We picked up our things and went over to the manor house. It was a pretty little place. I said I thought I should like it better than the other house. And Harris said, oh, yes, it would be all right. And we needn't look at the man with the red hair. Besides, the poor fellow couldn't help having red hair. Harris spoke quite kindly and sensibly about it. The people at the manor house did not wait to hear us talk. The landlady, landlady met us on the doorstep with the greeting that we were the fourteenth party she had turned away within the last hour and a half. 
As for our meek suggestions of stables, billiard room, or coal cellars, she laughed them all to scorn. All these nooks had been snatched up long ago. Did she know of any place in the whole village where we could get a shelter for the night? Well, if we didn't mind roughing it, she did not recommend it, mind, but there was a little beer shop half a mile down the Eaton Road. We waited to hear no more. We caught up the hamper and the bags and the coats and rugs and parcels and ran. The distance seemed more like a mile than half a mile, but we reached the place at last and rushed, panting, into the bar. The people at the beer shop were rude. They merely laughed at us. There were only three beds in the whole house, and they already had seven single gentlemen and two married couples sleeping there already. A kind-hearted bargeman, however, who happened to be in the taproom, thought we might try the grocer's next door to the stag, and we went back. The grocer's was full. An old woman we met in the shop then took us along with her for a quarter of a mile to a lady friend of hers who occasionally let rooms to gentlemen. This old woman walked very slowly, and we were twenty minutes getting to her lady friend's. She enlivened the journey by describing to us as we trailed along the various pains she had had in her back. Her lady friend's rooms were let. From there we were recommended to number 27. Number 27 was full and sent us to number 32, and number 32 is full. Then we went back into the high road, and Harris sat down on the hamper and said he would go no further. He said it seemed a quiet spot and he would like to die there. He requested George and me to kiss his mother for him and to tell all his relations that he forgave them and died happy. At that moment, an angel came by in the disguise of a small boy, and I cannot think of any more effective disguise an angel could have assumed, with a can of beer in one hand and in the other something at the end of a string, which he let down onto every flat stone he came across, and then pulled up again, this producing a particularly unattractive sound, suggestive of suffering. We asked this heavenly messenger, as we discovered him afterwards to be, if he knew of any lonely house whose occupants were few and feeble, old ladies or paralyzed gentlemen preferred, who could be easily frightened into giving up their beds for the night to three desperate men, or, if not this, could he recommend to us an empty pigsty or a disused, disused lime kiln or anything of that sort? He did not know of any such place, at least not one handy, but he said that if we liked to come with him, his mother had a room to spare and could put us up for the night. We fell on his upon his neck there in the moonlight and blessed him, and it would have made a very beautiful picture if the boy himself had not been so overpowered by our emotion as to be unable to sustain himself under it and sunk to the ground, letting us all down on top of him. Harris was so overcome with joy that he fainted and had to seize the boy's beer can and half empty it before he could recover consciousness, and then he started off at a run and left George and me to bring on the luggage. It was a little four-roomed cottage where the boy lived, and his mother, good soul, gave us hot bacon for supper, and we ate it all, five pounds, and a jam tart afterwards and two pots of tea, and then we went to bed. There were two beds in that in the room. One was a two-foot-six-inch truckle bed, and George and I slept in that, and kept in by tying ourselves together with a sheet and the other was the little boy's bed, and Harris had that all to himself, and we found him in the morning with two feet of bare legs sticking out at the bottom, and George and I used it to hang the towels on while we bathed. We were not so uppish about what sort of hotel we would have next time we went to Datchet. To return to our present trip, nothing exciting happened, and we tugged steadily on to a little below Monkey Island, where we drew up and lunched. We tackled the cold beef for lunch, and then we found that we had forgotten to bring any mustard. I don't think I ever in my life, before or since, felt I wanted mustard as badly as I felt I wanted it then. I don't care for mustard as a rule, and it is very seldom that I take it at all, but I would have given worlds for it then. 
I don't know how many worlds there may be in the universe. But anyone who had brought me a spoonful of mustard at that precise moment could have had them all. I grow reckless like that when I want a thing and can't get it. Harris said he would have given worlds for mustard, too. It would have been a good thing for anybody who had come up to that spot with a can of mustard then. He would have been set up in worlds for the rest of his life. But there, I dare say both Harris and I would have tried to back out of the bargain after we had got the mustard. One makes these extravagant offers in moments of excitement, but, of course, when one comes to think of it, one sees how absurdly out of proportion they are with the value of the required article. I heard a man, going up a mountain in Switzerland, once say he would give worlds for a glass of beer, and when he came to a little shanty where they kept it, he kicked up a most fearful row because they charged him five francs for a bottle of bass. He said it was a scandalous imposition, and he wrote to the Times about it. It cast a gloom over the boat, there being no mustard. We ate our beef in silence. Existence seemed hollow and uninteresting. We thought of the happy days of childhood, inside. We brightened up a bit, however, over the apple tart, and when George drew out a tin of pineapple from the bottom of the hamper and rolled it into the middle of the boat, we felt that life was worth living after all. We were very fond of pineapple, all three of us. We looked at the picture on the tin, we thought of the juice, we smiled at one another, and Harris got a spoon ready. Then we looked for the knife to open the tin with. We turned out everything in the hamper. We turned to the bags. We pulled up the boards at the bottom of the boat. We took everything out onto the bank and shook it. There was no tin opener to be found. Then Harris tried to open the tin with a pocket knife and broke the knife and cut himself badly. And George tried a pair of scissors, and the scissors flew up and nearly put his eye out. While they were dressing their wounds, I tried to make a hole in the thing with the spiky end of the hitcher, and the hitcher slipped and jerked me out between the boat and the bank into two feet of muddy water, and the tin rolled over, uninjured, and broke a teacup. Then we all got mad. We took that tin out on the bank, and Harris went up into a field and got a big, sharp stone, and I went back into the boat and brought out the mast, and George held the tin, and Harris held the sharp end of his stone against the top of it, and I took the mast and poised it high up in the air and gathered all my strength and brought it down. It was George's straw hat that saved his life that day. He keeps that hat now, what is left of it, and of a winter's coming, when the pipes are lit and the boys are telling stretchers about the dangers they have passed through. George brings it down and shows it round, and the stirring tale is told anew, with fresh, fresh exaggerations every time. Harris got off with merely a flesh wound. After that I took the tin off myself and hammered at it with the mast till I was worn out and sick at heart, whereupon Harris took it in hand. We beat it out flat, we beat it back square, we battered it into every form known to geometry, but we could not make a hole in it. Then George went at it and knocked it into a shape so strange, so weird, so unearthly in its wild hideousness that he got frightened and threw away the mast. Then we all three sat round it on the grass and looked at it. There was one great dent across the top that had the appearance of a mocking grin, and it drove us furious, so that Harris rushed, Harris rushed at the thing and caught it up and flung it far into the middle of the river, and as it sank we hurled our curses at it, and we got into the boat and rowed away from the spot, and never paused till we reached Maidenhead. Maidenhead itself is too snobby to be pleasant. It is the haunt of the river swell and his overdressed female companion. It is the town of showy hotels, patronized chiefly by dudes and ballet girls. It is the witch's kitchen from which go forth those demons of the river, steam launches. The London Journal Duke always has his little place at Maidenhead, and the heroine of the three-volume novel always dines there when she goes out on the spree with somebody else's husband. We went through Maidenhead quickly, and then eased up, and took leisurely that grand reach beyond bolters and cook and locks. 
Cliveden Woods still wore their dainty dress of spring and rose up from the water's edge in one long harmony of blended shades of fairy green. In its unbroken loveliness, this is perhaps the sweetest stretch of all the river, and lingeringly we slowly drew our little boat away from its deep peace. We pulled up in the backwater just below Cookham and had tea, and when, and when we were through the lock, it was evening. A stiffish breeze had sprung up, in our favor, for a wonder, for as the, a rule on the river, the wind is always dead against you, whatever way you go. It is against you in the morning, when you start for a day's trip, and you pull a long distance, thinking how easy it will be to come back with the sail. Then after tea, the wind veers around, and you have to pull hard in its teeth all the way home. When you forget to take the sail at all, then the wind is consistently in your favor both ways. But there, this world is only a probation, and man was born to trouble as the sparks fly upward. This evening, however, they had evidently made a mistake and had put the wind round at our back instead of in our face. We kept very quiet about it and got the sail up quickly before they found it out, and then we spread ourselves about the boat in thoughtful attitudes, and the sail bellied out and strained and grumbled at the mast, and the boat flew. I steered. There is no more thrilling sensation I know of than sailing. It comes as near to flying as man has got to yet, except in dreams. The wings of the rushing wind seem to be bearing you onward, you know not where. You are no longer the slow, plodding, puny thing of clay, creeping torturously upon the ground. You are part of nature. Your heart is throbbing against hers. Her glorious arms are round you, raising, up, raising you up against her heart. Your spirit is at one with hers. Your limbs grow light. The voices of the air are singing to you. The earth seems far away and little, and the clouds so close to your head are brothers, and you stretch your arms to them. We had the river to ourselves, except that far in the distance we could see a fishing punt, moored in midstream, on which three fishermen sat, and we skimmed over the water and passed the wooden banks, and no one spoke. I was steering. As we drew nearer, we could see that the three men fishing seemed old and solemn-looking men. They sat on three chairs in the punt and watched intently their lines. As in the red sunset threw a mystic light upon the waters and tinged with fire the towering woods and made a golden glory of the piled-up clouds. It was an hour of deep enchantment, of ecstatic hope and longing. The little sail stood out against the purple sky, the gloaming lay around us, wrapping the world in rainbow shadows, and behind us crept the night. We seemed like knights of some old legend sailing across some mystic lake into the unknown realm of twilight unto the great land of the sunset. We did not go into the realm of twilight. We went slap into that punt where those three old men were fishing. We did not know what had happened at first, because the sail shut out the view. But from the nature of the language that rose up upon the evening air, we gathered that we had come into the neighborhood of human beings, and that they were vexed and discontented. Harris let the sail down, and then we saw what had happened. We had knocked those three old gentlemen off their chairs into a general heap at the bottom of the boat, and they were now slowly and painfully sorting themselves out from each other, and picking fish off themselves, and as they worked, they cursed us. Not with a common cursory curse, but with long, carefully thought-out, comprehensive curses that embraced the whole of our career, and went away into the distant future, and included all our relations, and covered everything connected with us, good, substantial curses. Harris told them they ought to be grateful for a little excitement, sitting there fishing all day, and he also said that he was shocked and grieved to hear men their age give way to temper so. But it did not do any good. George said he would steer after that. 
He said a mind like mine ought not to be expected to give itself away in steering boats. Better let a mere commonplace human being see after the, that boat before we jolly well all got drowned. And he took the lines and brought us up to Marlow. And at Marlow we left the boat by the bridge and went and put up for the night at the Crown.'